0: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner
2: Program.
1: I remember the night Mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're going to drive. And Daddy heard the commotion and came... And tap dancing playing his sixth string. And they both looked at me and they said, Son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't try. You've been drinking beer. Don't try. If you're talking on the phone. Don't try. If your ties are bald and it's starting to snow. Don't try. Your foot can't reach the pedal. Don't cry! And no one understands your diction! Don't cry! Don't speak, don't read, don't breathe, don't tweet, don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat. And don't put no makeup on or shave. You know you're not supposed to do that. Ugh. If you gotta do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes. Ah, go ahead and scuffle up. If you're driving with your knees Don't drive if while you roll know you eat Don't drive If you don't know how to drive Don't drive if you've been psychedelicized Don't drive If you're kissing on your boobs
3: Hey, welcome back everybody as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program, I guess this hour has a uh, book out um, that I think you might find handy and something you might want to have on your bookshelf at home called How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, um, a Patient's Handbook for Survival. It's by Dr. David Wilcox. He joins me by phone. Hi, David. Welcome to the show.
4: Hey, Tom. How are you today? Thanks for having me on.
3: Well, I were you on a few weeks ago? How long has this book been out?
4: Well, the book's been out since June, towards the end of June of twenty twenty one, and okay. we talked together in October.
3: Okay, I th- I thought so, and I meant to look up when it was, and I and I didn't do it. So thanks for being prepared for that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but let's let's talk a little bit about. Why this book might be handy for people, especially as we get to a point where we think we might be coming out of the pandemic.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, so much has changed even since the last time we talked, Tom, that, you know, changes in healthcare are occurring daily. Um, with this pandemic and what we're seeing as we start to come out of it with staffing shortages and healthcare. Clinicians who are just burned out and said enough is enough. Hospitals aren't able to accept the same capacity. The model of healthcare itself is going to change. But all that to say that while all these X. Ex-
3: Hello, David. David, I've I've lost you. I don't. I can't hear you. If you can hear me, please. Uh, um, I guess hang up and we'll reconnect and see if we can okay. get you. Oh, there you, you are. You can't hear me. I oh, I can now. Sorry. I don't know what happened, oh. <laughs> but you were gone for a while. Um,
4: probably the probably the pharmaceutical company cutting my internet or something. <laughs> 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 So how far did you get into my uh, into uh, what I was saying? <laughs>
3: um, you you were talking about how much healthcare has changed just since we talked in October, and and you were starting to go into that, and that's when we lost you.
4: Okay, sorry about that. Um, some things are out of my control, but so let me just say that while while the clinicians who are getting burned out and leaving healthcare. They're creating decreased capacity at hospitals to take patients. We're seeing that. We're seeing long wait times wherever we go. And all that to say that while the experts in healthcare, and I use quotation, air quotation marks for that, as well as the political entities try to sort this mess out, the best thing that the American public can do is educate themselves on the healthcare system. Because the healthcare system is a very scary place. Medical errors were the third leading cause of death before COVID. They're now the fourth. And so you want to be prepared when you access the American healthcare system, whether you're going in as an inpatient in a hospital or you're taking a trip to the emergency room or you're dealing with high-cost pharmacy medications. Um, Some doctor writes you a script that's $800 or you're dealing with an insurance company that doesn't want to pay your claim. You have to be educated. No longer can we be you know, doctor knows all, let's trust the system. It's not going to work for the American people. And that's exactly why I wrote this book. And it's exactly why I encourage people to get educated, even if it's not my book. Just get educated so that you're safe when you access the American healthcare care system.
3: Well, how do people know um, what to look for? Um, you know how how to even access a guide like yours or or you know some other resource?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And so there are many resources available. The thing is finding out what they are. You could spend a week doing internet searches, right, to find out um, information on your providers on your hospitals, but I put it all together in this book for you. So if you want to understand, what the star ratings are for your hospital. And star ratings are something that the centers of Medicare and Medicaid services actually put out based on um, patients' responses to surveys that are sent after they leave the hospital. uh, What was your experience there? So when you get those surveys, guys, that are listening, fill them out, especially if you've got somebody who did a really good job, you wanna mention them, or if you have somebody, who maybe didn't do such a great job, you wanna mention them Because unless the hospitals know that, they can't work on it. And the other thing is it affects their reimbursement. So as a a consumer of healthcare, you can go to the CMS.gov website, look up your hospital, and you can see that your hospital is rated by stars. Five stars the best. So if you have a five-star hospital, go. No hesitations there, right? four stars I'd go to, too. When it gets down around three, you want to kind of read the comments and find out why it's so dicey. Um, You know, and then you can also check out your provider, your doctors there. If you're going to get a surgeon who's doing surgery on you, you can check them out there. Um, There's a couple different sites that you can check them out on, too. So, I mean, there's You definitely want to look at who's cutting into you or who's taking care of you to see what their star ratings are and what other patients are saying about them. I
3: I can certainly understand people looking up the the healthcare providers that they're dealing directly with, whether it's a primary care physician or a surgeon or some other specialist. Um, But most people don't interact directly with hospitals.
4: That's correct. Uh, most of them just go to the hospital get the bill and pay it hopefully your insurance company pays the majority of it and they pay what what's left out of pocket many individuals don't even read their bills so they don't see that 25 dollars tylenol that they may or may not have gotten in the hospital i can't tell you how many people that i've spoken to have found upcharges in their hospital bills and then the funny thing is when I talked to them, they said, well, I'm afraid to call the hospital because what if they say the insurance doesn't cover it? I said, you didn't get it. You, know, you need to call and have them take it off the bill. I mean, you would think the insurance company would do that too if they're actually paying for it, but it doesn't happen in the majority of the cases that I've seen.
3: Well, the insurance company would have no way of knowing whether you got
4: it or not. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's, that's a good point. Uh, and that's another disconnect, right, because they don't even talk to the patients to see what the care was, what they got. They just either pay or deny the bill.
3: Well, you know, I was going to suggest something, and then I realized that somehow it would result in me filling out a form on a clipboard, <laughs> and and I thought, wait a minute, maybe I better not say anything, but... It, <laughs> But it seems like the insurance company should have a follow-up. You know, did you get the things that we paid for?
4: Right, exactly. Um, But they don't. (laughs) The only one who has a follow-up is the surveys that you get that really um, affect the reimbursement of the hospital. So a hospital who's at a two-star rating is not going to get the same reimbursement that a hospital at a five-star rating is going to get. So it behooves the hospital to actually work on it. Prior to this, yeah, Back in the day, right, um, it didn't matter what your experience was at a hospital. Nobody ever knew. Nobody ever worked on anything. So you can applaud the effort that at least this government entity is trying to figure out, hey, is the care good at this hospital or is it not so good as reported by the patient, not reported by the hospital, which can, you know, of course, fudge your numbers.
3: Well, there, there was a time where if you went to the hospital for something, if it went well, you walked out. <laughs> if it didn't you, <laughs> right. you, you didn't walk
4: out um, well in a box maybe but there's yeah. no walking there
3: <laughs> but now there's um i i it's 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 weird they're not hospital rooms anymore they're suites
4: yeah that's a, that's an interesting concept um because you know, they're, what they're trying to do is enhance the patient experience, which is good. Well, I mean, we all want to have an enhanced experience. But if you go to the hospital, it's not like going to the Marriott, right? At Marriott, you're on vacation. At the hospital, you're there to get better. So they try all this stuff. Yeah I don't, don't have, I, a,
3: yeah, I don't have that expectation.
4: <laughs> right. What they don't do is they don't fix the core things, like nurses who have too many patients. Or, you know, you have to wait forever for a procedure or the doctor says that he's going to discharge you in the morning. So you're all psyched to get discharged, but he doesn't come back till 6 p.m. to write the order. Those are the kind of things that really enhance the patient experience. If you're told you're going to be discharged and then all of a sudden you have the paperwork an hour later, that's great, right? That's a pleasant patient experience. If you have to wait eight hours and nobody tells you why. You're just sitting there going, come on, I was supposed to be out of here hours ago, you know, to see my dog, you know. Uh, it's, um, they don't work on that stuff, but you're right, they dress up the rooms really nice for you.
3: David, did I lose you again?
4: Well, I'm not liking this connection. Can you hear me, Tom? I can now. But okay. But it
3: seems, it seems like I did lose you for a second there.
4: Okay. Um, yeah, so did you hear what I said basically about the patient experience and, and the fact yeah, you, that you, it, it,
3: yeah. it left off with, um, it, I was just trying to think what the exact phrase was that you left off with. It was, um, uh, I, I, I've lost it. I was concerned That's okay. about the connection. <laughs> um, but it was just for a moment or so.
4: Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've seen programs, Tom, where they actually take the nurse or the doctor and actually treat them like they're a patient so they can actually understand what goes on, you know. Um, getting a bed bath. I mean, it's kind of a humiliating experience, right? I mean, you've got somebody you don't know washing you up and, and that kind of stuff. And I think it's important that people don't lose that perspective of the patient um, in any in any way shape or form there's enough entities out there trying to grab your healthcare care dollars that really don't care about you but in the clinicians the doctors and the nurses who really do and are just as frustrated by the healthcare care system as the rest of us are i mean those are the people that that have to suffer through it um along with you as a patient so
3: well and you were talking about uh you know the the idea that um you know, there's paperwork to be filled out to discharge you, and you start getting psyched up to leave, and then it takes forever to get the paperwork. And I'm not a fan of paperwork, and when somebody says, we're ready to discharge you, I start walking toward the door.
4: Right, exactly. You know, and I'm,
3: I'm ready to go now.
4: <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's the expectation. The other piece of it that um that I just don't understand as a healthcare professional is the patient teaching part of it. So when you're diagnosed with a new condition like congestive heart failure. Oh, uh,
3: David, I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Yes, sir. Because I want to get into that patient education part of it and pick that apart. My guest is uh, Dr. David Wilcox. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in, and then we'll be back
2: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio
4: Show.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with Dr. David Wilcox, the author of a, uh, a book. Let me get the title here just right, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a Patient's Handbook for Survival. David, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that.
4: That's okay. Okay. <laughs>
3: Just before the break, you were starting to mention something, and I thought, oh boy, here we go. You start talking about patient education, and one of the things um, more and more healthcare providers, doctors, and other healthcare professionals, are really encouraging patients to ask questions, and they're opening themselves up to, you know, being willing to share information with patients, but. Patients don't always know what questions to ask, and if they do figure out what questions to ask, they don't always understand the answer.
4: Yep, that's correct.
3: So, what so, do we um, do about that? I, you know, I, I mean, do do we need classes at medical schools to teach doctors? You know, um, maybe maybe it's an alternating class with the one that teaches them how to their penmanship. Mm-hmm um that that teaches doctors you know how to how to translate medical technology or uh, not technology uh, uh
4: terminology but,
3: yeah terminology, thank you um you know into language you know regular people speak
4: yes, and you know that's interesting um that you bring that up because when I wrote this book. I'm not a layman anymore, right? So I had I sent my chapters to my aunt, who is a retired school teacher, and she went through and she would ask me questions around, you know, what does body positivity mean or what does this mean or you need to explain this better. So, yes, and it, it's simple to do that. I mean, if you if you have a council of patients and you push those educational materials out to them, they will do that work for you. The problem is in healthcare, we get so involved in – Well, we have to be very technical about the terms. We have to be very careful about what we advise the patient to do because, you know, there's possible lawsuits that could happen, especially if something's in writing. And so we don't give those patient education materials the thought that we really should or the explanation into layperson's terms. Um, There are, I can't even tell you, Tom, how many companies are out there that are working with electronic medical records to try to break all of that down. Into terms that the layperson can consume. Um, but obviously, we're not doing a great job, and part of that is our model. So, you know, when you're getting ready to be discharged, the only thing you're thinking about is God, I can't wait to get home. I haven't slept. I'm tired. This hospital's noisy. I want to see my dog. You know, I want to see my wife. Um, right? It's just craziness. And we come in with all this patient education material and, and say, okay, so we want you to understand this and we want you to sign here and you'll sign anything just to get out of there, right? I mean, that's just the way, that's human nature. And so you go back with this stack of leaflets and then you you don't really understand what to do to keep yourself healthy. Um, That model has to change. I mean, it's based basically on when the nurse has time as opposed to when the patient's in the hospital and you're not doing anything, there's there's a bunch of different technology you can use to push out those patients Teaching instructions. There's um, televisions that can hook up to the patient. Teaching instructions, so you can consume it when you're ready to consume it, instead of having it all thrown at you on the way out the door.
3: Yeah, it, it, maybe maybe it's as simple as as handing a a flash drive to patients. Uh, not every patient is is going to be computer literate, but um, but by and large, if you were to give out um, the option of a flash drive or a DVD—you um, know—people could take those things home and, and go through them and, and maybe get a better understanding than that that five-minute rundown you get when somebody's getting the wheelchair.
4: Yeah, exactly. And we do have <laughs> pa- we do have patient portals. So patient portals are portals that you can access that information from, what I have done with my older relatives is they'll say to me, I don't know know, how to get into my portal. And I'll say, well, if you're comfortable, give me the sign on criteria and I'll get in there and pull your patient teaching and then we'll just talk about what you need to do next. So um, in the book, I also talk a lot about having a nurse in your network. That is invaluable because nurses want to help people. And we can break down the complexities of what's in those patient teaching documents into layperson's terms. my My wife, who is also a nurse, she I mean, the entire neighborhood calls her when there's something's going on, and we um, just had a situation where one of our one of our neighbors didn't get teaching. They gave the neighbor antibiotic, which wipes out you know, all of your intestinal um, flora, good or bad, um, when in your intestinal tract. And then pain medication on top of that, which is known to constipate people, and the neighbor's calling and saying, I'm having a lot of tro- problems going to the bathroom, and my wife is saying, well, eat some activity, Activia lo- yogurt. She said, if, you, if that doesn't work for you, then take a couple senna's." you know, just giving her advice on what to do. But she, nobody taught her that on the way out of the door wh- at the hospital. I mean, they just, the clinicians are so overloaded, it's in, almost impossible to get to everything that the patient needs to know at this point in time
3: yeah for me the yogurt thing probably isn't going to work my my substitute is chili but that's that's a whole nother
4: <laughs> well i don't know how well that's going to work either tom maybe if you throw a little milk of magnesia on it
3: well <laughs> you know, i put a lot of onions in it and it it, it usually works
4: but um, you know we used to we used to use one we used to use one um when I worked at a nursing home and uh we called I can't remember what we called it the bomb of health but we would take prune juice and we would warm it up in the microwave and throw a shot of milk and magnesium and works every time so that's a little uh <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a little freebie for you guys out there
3: that's a, that 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 almost sounds a little extreme <laughs>
4: It worked every time. <laughs> well,
3: but, but let me ask you about something that we just touched on a moment ago, um, almost in passing, but I wanted to, to dig down on it a little bit, and that is um, how accessible your book is. Um, the It's it's the patient's handbook. Um, how, how do you organize it? How is it set up? Because most people, you know, get up in the morning and go, my back
4: hurts. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I broke it down into three sections. The first one is about the healthcare system and how to stay safe in it. Um, whether you're, you know, whether you're picking up a pharmaceutical medication that you don't know, or whether you're going to the hospital or if you're going to the emergency room, um, what do you do about end of life paperwork? Right, because that's very, very important um, to. To people, I've seen so many situations, I won't go into great detail about with end-of-life care, where people's wishes weren't respected by the family. And, you know, how do you make sure your wishes are respected? There's a whole chapter on that. Second part of it is what are the costs of health care? So what, why are your prescriptions so much money? My wife went to pick up a prescription, and it was a $49 copay. But the pharmacist told us that if we didn't have insurance, that would have been $850. So, I mean, if you can sell it for $850 or you can pay a $49 copay and still make a profit because that's what the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies do, they return money to their shareholders every quarter, right, in the form of dividends. So what? Why? what's driving it up? Why should the poor guy who doesn't have insurance have to pay $850 or the guy who has insurance can get away with 49 It's just... Crazy, but that second part of the book talks about why the prices are where they are, and most importantly, what you can do to make sure you're not the person paying $850. So there's um, advice on GoodRx, which is a app that you can use to drive down your prices, sometimes lower than your copay with your insurance. So there's that piece of information. Um, there's a new thing that came out since you and I have spoken last, Mark Cuban from the Shark Tank, has, has developed a generic at cost um, mail order pharmacy. So at cost, I put that in air quotation marks because it's about fifteen percent up charge to sustain the model and about five percent to ship it to you. But I have seen medications on his site that retail for nine thousand five hundred dollars going for like forty seven dollars. So that is a disruptor, and the pharmaceutical companies hate this because anything even that you buy that's generic is usually at least 100% markup, if not more. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. having a disruptor in there that's saying, hey, I'm going to deal with the manufacturer themselves, I'm going to cut out all the middlemen, and believe me, there are a lot of middlemen between when your doctor writes that prescription and you actually pick it up at the pharmacy, all juggling rebates and coupons to try to make it work for them, not necessarily for you. They're called pharmacy benefit managers. So the second part of the book deals with how do you take care of that, make sure you're not the one paying the high prescription prices, and how do you make sure that your insurance company is going to actually pay your claim. So there's a lot of different information in there that will help the average American do that. And then the third part of the book is – What do I do to improve my own healthcare? So we talk about our current system of healthcare, which is fee for service, which means when you show up to the doctors or the hospitals, they're writing tests. They're doing all kinds of things, but they get paid when you show up. If you don't show up, they don't get paid. We saw it during COVID. People didn't go for elective surgeries. We, the taxpayers had to bail them out um, to keep the doors open which was the right thing to do. But what people don't understand is there is this little known piece of healthcare that payment model that's becoming more and more popular called value-based care. And so in fee-for-service, you get paid when they show up, not necessarily on your quality outcomes, not, you know, the fact that um, the doctor did a really good job and you stayed home, you didn't go back to the hospital. It's not on that. Value-based care is different. So the insurance companies and the physician groups, it's administered by what we call accountable care organizations. It's a fancy name for a bunch of doctors who look after your care. They get a certain amount every year from the insurance company. They say, okay, you need to keep Tom healthy with this amount of money. And so they proactively start pushing out things like, hey, Tom, you need your flu shot. Hey, Tom, it's time for your colonoscopy, your five-year colonoscopy you need to call to make an appointment. And if you don't make an appointment, they're calling you because now they've got skin in the game. If, you, if you're if you healthy, they get to keep the profit. If you end up going to the hospital, then they're going to have to pay extra money for that. This is a, a beautiful thing for the American healthcare system. And and um, research shows that only 25% of Americans have ever even heard of it but if you went to your computer right now and you googled accountable care organizations in my area you would come up with a list of doctors that are part of this this is the wave of the future and this is how we're going to fix health care you know um interesting statistic but the last time you and i talked uh the numbers that were in the gdp was 17.3 percent of what you spend goes towards health care now it's 19.7% and that's pushed up of course by the pandemic but 19.7% of what you're paying every dollar out of your pocket is going towards your health care so those are crazy numbers that's an unsustainable model and that's why we have to look at things in this country like value based care in order to make sure that doctors are really looking after you as opposed to just seeing you and getting paid on the volume of patients they see under a fee-for-service system.
3: David, I, I don't know if I told you this story the last time we talked or not, but uh, uh, a few years ago I had a heart attack, and, and I was see- I was and am seeing a cardiologist on a regular basis, but I went through a period of time where I didn't have health care insurance, and I wanted to keep up my appointments with a cardiologist. So I was paying him. You know, a flat fee every time I went to see him. And at at one point, he wanted me to take a stress test, and I asked him how much it would be. And he checked and said it was going to be I can't remember twelve hundred dollars. And I said, Well, then that's not going to happen. And uh, I got a call from his office a couple of days later. They had figured out a way to get me a stress test for a hundred and fifty dollars. Yep, <laughs> by by doing a different procedure, you know they did the treadmill version instead of the you know high tech you know chemical version, right? And you know, of yep. course, now I'm you know back. I I have health care now, and and I, you know, get whatever tests are required. But but I I just said you know I'm not I'm not going to do that. I don't have the money for that, and uh, and they figured it out
4: yeah so for so one thing I'll say is you've got a great doctor, don't change your doctor because if he was actually that concerned and and went back and challenged his staff to figure out a way to get you that stress test, kudos to him oh yeah um, yeah but, i
3: I really yeah. I like the guy you know, but it, it just it just stunned me that um you know that there were two options there,
4: yeah, and the second one wasn't fully explained to you because. They were hoping that you would pay the $1,200 and, and get the chemical stress test. That way, they they wouldn't have to suggest a second alternative it to was, you. And
3: it was, when, probably, it was probably the more accurate and, you know, the better test by comparison. But, you know, they'd gotten along for years doing it the other way, <laughs> and that was a lot cheaper.
4: Right, exactly, because the chemical stress test Stress test. You have bigger machines. You've got medications that are being pushed. It's not just putting you on a treadmill and hooking you up to a 12 lead EKG, which is a normal stress test. So, yes, I mean, um, but you're lucky, Tom, because not a lot of Americans get that choice. Right? They they stop them at the $1,200. I mean, you know, healthcare is 58.5 percent of personal bankruptcy in this country that's huge i mean that's over half of the bankruptcies that occur are all over health care bills and it's a lot of it is people who don't have insurance i was at the chiropractors the other day and i was talking to a young man who was telling me that he didn't have insurance and he cut his leg and he said he sewed it up himself and put bacitracin on it so he didn't get an infection he was lucky he didn't get an infection but with all the high tech health care that we have going on in this country that's unacceptable it's unacceptable for somebody to sit at home with a needle and thread and sew up their own leg in pain
3: yeah, that yeah, you wouldn't catch me doing that. I'd be out shopping for steri strips,
4: yeah, well, he was this guy would <laughs> look a little looked a little crazy. I think he could have pulled that off <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah well but but the thing is. What other things are people doing because they exactly. can't get access to the right kind of care and the right kind of procedures? Um, my guest is uh, Dr. David Wilcox. The book is uh, How to Get the Quality, or uh, it's about How to Get the Quality Healthcare You Deserve. It's called How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System A Patient's Handbook for Survival. Um, what what was it made you decide to write this book initially, David?
4: Yeah, so it's funny. I was finishing up my um, doctorate. I'm a nurse by by background, and I, what I did was I went back to school and, and got a doctorate of nursing practice. So um, I, it's called a DNP degree. And when I got done, as I was finishing off that degree, I was like, I kind of felt guilty because I was learning all this knowledge and I was understanding the payment structures and I knew things that would make it better for people. And then I was like, in my day job, do I really want my boss's job? No, I don't want that. So, what am I going to do with this? And then I just had the idea that I should just break down healthcare into layperson's terms and push it out, like you said, with patient education. This is. A, education that you can pick up when you're ready to receive it and sit down and read it so that you're when you go to the hospital and somebody's trying to push a prescription medication on you that you're not sure you take at home because some prescription medications have three different names um, depending on if it's a brand or generic um, or IV form of it so you can ask those questions what am I taking this for you feel empowered you start to understand that if you're going to get hurt it's going to happen around medications in the hospital that's what this Statistics show. So my whole drive was to get this information into people's hands. Tom, um, early in my life, I took care of my handicapped daughter, and I took her in and out of appointments with doctors. And so I, of it was like I don't really understand what they're saying, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. And so, you know, as my life progressed, and I had an opportunity to go back to school, I decided I wanted to become a nurse. And I went back to become a nurse and through many degrees later obtained my doctorate, but I never lost that perspective of David with his handicapped daughter going from appointment to appointment, trying to figure out what I could do around her seizures and things like that um, to give her the best quality of life. So that was, that was the drive. That's what was inside of me that said, I have got to get this information into people's hands and keep people safe.
3: Um, a question that I have, because it says a patient's handbook, um, is it laid out in such a way that, that people are likely to read it from cover to cover? I mean, can it be consumed that way, or is this something that's more like a reference guide?
4: So that's a great question. I have had people tell me that the, the way that I weave personal stories into the book and that it helped them go from, wow, this is shocking to, okay, now I can understand it a little bit better because it's kind of like you you say something and then you give an example of how it actually plays out. So I've had people who read it from cover to cover every time. And then I have people who say, You know, oh my God, I was having such a problem with the insurance company. So I went to your insurance company chapter and started to read that. Um, One thing I would say, don't skimp out on the last third of the book. If you want to understand how to take charge of your own health care and how to be a better partner in your health care than just somebody who blindly accepts whatever your health care professionals are telling you to do because you know your body the best, you definitely want to go through the third part of the book. But I've had people use it in different ways. I had one guy who told me, he said it was so intense to him that he said I could only take it in chunks, like I'd have to set it down and think about what I just read. And then I would go back the next day and I would read another chapter. So it's, um, it's all in how you want to consume the information.
3: Well, let me, uh, let me ask you this, because we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, and, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. David, do you have a, a website?
4: I do, Tom. Thank you. It is one drdavidwilcox.com. That's drdavidwilcox.com. There's a link to the book up there. Um, in fact, your interviews up there, Tom, under, in the press room, the last one that we did. This one will be up there shortly. So uh, it just gives people a resource um, that they can go to, and they can sign up and subscribe to it. I push out information uh, like I did with the Mark Cuban pharmacy model that's a disruptor for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and, you know, get on my mailing list.
3: What's, what's next um, for you? Do you have the writing bug
4: now? You know, I've been thinking about that, but re- <laughs> really what I, what I really want to do, and I've been listening to the, my readers about what they think I should do next. And so that's important, too. If you guys have some ideas out there about what I should do next or how to better inform you around healthcare, I would be very interested because I'm starting to put that together and think about what I'm going to write next. Right now, I've been very busy with um, with you know, getting this information out, doing podcasts, doing TV interviews, sure. uh, trying to get to the American people. There's not a lot of people who are doing this for patients, so um, I've been very busy with it. But there's going to come a time where I'm going to sit down and start to work on my next book.
3: Well, David, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners, and, uh, and by all means, keep up the good work.
4: Thank you, Tom. I always enjoy talking with you. You know that, and you know where to find me, my friend. All right. Take care. Oh, bye bye.
3: That was Dr. David Wilcox, the author of um, a new book. It's it's been out for you know a little while now, but uh, it's called um, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System: A Patient's Handbook for Survival. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well.
5: Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And
1: every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner
5: program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
6: East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint.
4: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickerson.
0: (laughs) After seven years of cycloid insomnia, or Slugger's disease, John Bickerson had finally consented to allow Dr. Hershey to relieve his condition. In room 113 at the General Hospital... Mrs. Bickerson watches anxiously as a surgical nurse ministers to poor John, who is suffering an attack the night before the operation. Listen.
6: Oh, it's like being married to a steam shovel nurse. Cough's normal. Enjoy yourself, dear. Dr. Hershey's waiting for you in the corridor, Mrs. Bickerson. Oh, hello, doctor.
0: Is he resting? I gave him a sedative. That'll quiet him down.
6: Well, he isn't very quiet.
0: Oh, well, actually, I could have done the operation in my office. It's so trivial. I won't be in surgery over 15 minutes, and there's absolutely no danger whatsoever.
6: Will it hurt him?
0: Not the slightest. All we do is take a stitch in his palate and shorten his uvula.
6: I hate to bring this up now, Dr. Hershey, but how much will it cost?
0: The fee will be $50 with the anesthetic.
6: How much is it without the anesthetic? I would say
0: about $40.
6: Would there be any discomfort if he didn't have an
0: anesthetic? Not for me, there wouldn't. I wouldn't advise the operation without it. And you're sure he'll be cured when you're through? Oh, practically certain. Well, it's almost midnight now. I'll do his case first thing about seven. He just needs a good night's rest. Well, I'll just stay a little longer, Good night. Call the floor nurse if you need anything.
6: Oh, I will. I hope that pill's quieted him down. I'm sure that isn't doing him any good. John! John, wake up!
5: What, what's the matter, Blanche? Uh, what's the matter, huh? I put the cat out, I locked the windows, I left a note for the milkman, and I, and I hung up... John!
2: Uh,
6: we're in the hospital
5: what for is somebody sick
6: no you're going to have an operation dr hershey's going to shorten your uvula in the morning
5: well then what did you wake me up now for
6: well you were snoring and i was afraid you'd wear it off before he got a chance to operate you've been snoring steadily for three hours don't you suppose i want to sleep too
5: you're not sleeping here are you
6: yes i am it costs another $5 to put another cart in the room. I, and I intend to use it.
5: I can't get one night's sleep. Where's my Not nightgown. even in the hospital.
6: I don't understand why you have to have an operation to cure your snoring.
5: I didn't want it. You've been working on me for seven years to do this.
6: I'm beginning to think it was a waste of money. I could have used that $40. I'm still walking around in a short dress.
5: What are you going on about? Tomorrow I'll be walking around with a short uvula. Don't
6: be so crabby. I'm
5: not crabby. I'm just sleepy. Why don't you stop fiddling with that mirror and put out the lights?
6: I have to get undressed, don't I?
5: Well, take your dress off. Why are you plucking your eyebrows at this time of night?
6: I'm not plucking my eyebrows. I'm taking off my false eyelashes.
5: False eyelashes? I didn't even know you had bald eyelids.
6: My eyelids are not bald. It's just that my lashes are short, and they don't bring out my eyes. Lots of women use false eyelashes.
5: Well, throw them away. You don't need anything to bring out your eyes. Really? Really. I'm satisfied with the way they bulge now. What
6: kind of a remark is that?
5: Oh, hurry up, Blanche. I'm groggy. Blanche, what on earth are you taking out of your hair?
6: It's a rat. A what? A roll of false hair. I have to wear it for the new hairstyles. My own hair is too thin with a pompadour. Oh, darn it, I can't get out of this dress.
5: Blanche, what are those things? <laughs> Don't be
6: silly. Haven't you ever seen shoulder pads before?
5: Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. Your eyelashes are on the dresser, your hair is in the drawer, and your shoulders are on the chairs.
6: <laughs> what about it?
5: That's you all over, Blanche. No one can think of more ways to spend money. Are you ready for bed now?
6: Yes, dear. I'm ready for bed. Shall I crank yours up a little?
5: No, put out the lights.
6: Oh, I wanted to glance at the paper first. You go ahead and go to sleep.
5: I can't sleep with the lights on. I left my sleep shade at home.
6: Well, I won't be a minute.
5: No one would believe this. In six hours, they're going to carve me to pieces. I'm supposed to rest, and here I'm...
6: I can't concentrate with you mumbling. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a lot of activity in Washington. What's all this tax reduction talk? Talk? Listen to what's...
5: Blanche, I read the paper, every word of it. Read it to yourself.
6: Don't be so disagreeable. Dr. Hershey told me to keep you occupied so you wouldn't think about the operation.
5: All I'm thinking about is sleep.
6: Oh, that's a good boy. You mustn't get nervous. No. I see the stock market is going up.
5: That's fine.
6: We have some stock, haven't we? Didn't you get some stock last year?
5: Ten shares. Kentucky Salt Peter Mines. Preferred stock.
6: My brother got you in on the ground floor, didn't he? Where is that now?
5: In the ground.
6: I can't even find it listed on the stock page.
5: Look in the help wanted column.
6: Are you getting relaxed, dear?
5: No. Now I'm starting to get nervous.
6: I'm worried about you, John. If anything happened to you on the operating table, it would all be my fault. So, you know what I think?
5: We'll, uh, sneak out, huh?
6: (laughs) No. I think you should make out a will.
5: Make out a will? I thought you were worried about me.
6: Well, you don't want to leave me at the mercies of all those grasping relatives of yours, do you? The minute you drop dead, they'll... Don't
5: talk like that. Can't you say pass on or something like that?
6: Well, you always say, drop dead. That's
5: only when I'm talking to your brother. You could be a little more delicate when you're discussing wills. Why? Because you make it sound like I'm going to go any minute.
6: Well, they don't give you two weeks' notice, you know. Every man should make out a will.
5: Okay, I'll make it out tomorrow.
6: You say it, but you won't do it. Get up now. Do it now. What? Go on, get up, and make out a will.
5: Well, you're out of your mind. In the first place, a will isn't legal unless you have two witnesses. And in second place, I haven't got anything to leave in the first place. Nobody is going to take anything, and I don't need a will.
6: You are the most stubborn man that ever lived, John.
5: Why? Why am I stubborn? It's the
6: hardest thing in the world to make you admit I'm right when you know I'm wrong.
5: There's a woman's logic for you. Suppose I do make out a will, and nobody can touch anything besides you. Okay, so now... You've got it all, my worldly goods. First thing you know, you'll get over your grief, marry a guy without a dollar to his name like that broken-down snore specialist, Dr. Hershey.
6: Oh, I'm not going to marry anybody.
5: He'll give up his practice, take you for every penny, my hard-earned money. He'll drive around my brand-new car, drink my bourbon, (laughs) loaf around like the French, never do a day's work. Why don't you make the bum get a job, Blanche? And
6: then screaming like that. Up and go
5: to sleep. Go to sleep, she tells me. I'm a nervous wreck. She practically walks me into a funeral. Mary's a doctor behind my back. Now she tells me to go to sleep. I'll never sleep another wink as long as I. John,
6: the telephone. The telephone. Answer
5: it! No. Who the dickens is calling? Who moved the phone, Blanche? What'd you
6: get up for? It's right on the night table beside your bed.
5: I thought I was, uh... Hello? Mrs.
2: Renesis, this is your maternity nurse. You can get ready now. I'm bringing your baby in.
5: What? Blanche, how long have I been here?
2: Isn't he 413?
5: I don't know what this is, but I'm not feeding any babies. (sighs) A way to run a hospital.
6: It's just a mistake, John.
5: No, I shouldn't have fallen for this operation deal. I could be so comfortable at home in my own bed. One of us should have stayed there.
6: What for?
5: How do you know a prowler won't break in? I left a whole bottle of bourbon on the dresser.
6: Nobody will break in. The turkey would gobble and scare him away.
5: The turkey would gobble? I can just see. Turkey? What turkey?
6: Well, I was going to surprise you. I won a turkey in a raffle, John.
5: You've got a live turkey running around the house? He
6: isn't running around. I've got him tied to your bed.
5: On my bed? What'd you do that for? I'll have the whole thing full of feathers. What'll we do with a live turkey?
6: Well, it's Thanksgiving tomorrow, John, and I thought you'd murder him for dinner.
5: I'm not going to murder any turkeys. But if he lays a beak on my bourbon, I'll chop his head off. Blanche, you're the most impossible woman that ever lived.
6: Oh, I'm sorry, John. I guess everything I do is wrong. I'll go home and put the turkey out.
5: Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Never mind. I didn't mean to holler. Let's go to sleep so I can feel good for the operation.
6: I don't think I want you to have it.
5: What's the least I can do for you? Kept you awake all these years with my snoring, and when Dr. Hershey gets through with me, I'll be as quiet as a mouse.
6: But if you stop snoring... I'll never wake you up, will I? No. And if I don't wake you up, we won't fight, will we?
5: That's right.
6: Well, that settles it. I'm not going to let him operate, John.
5: Why not?
6: It's the only chance I get to talk to you. Come on, we're going home.
5: I give up.
1: Radio for a new generation the time summer program the time summer program the time summer program The Tom Sumner oh, yeah.
4: Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjik. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.